Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website at actin.org, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. If you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Research Fellow and Librarian here at Acton. Today, we'll ponder if the Omicron variant is a good development and if you can legislate away wokeness. But first, I want to go to the U.S. Capitol, um, and I've been invited inside, just so you know. Uh, But one of the things that's taking place inside the U.S. Capitol is there is a House Select Committee that is investigating the events of January 6th. And there was initially a proposal to have an independent commission investigate it. That was voted down. Uh, But there is a bipartisan January 6th select House committee uh, made bipartisan by two Republicans who are generally out of favor with the Republican Party. Um, And as you might imagine – Uh, There has been a lot of contentiousness around this um, and uh, along with some interesting things revealed, which included uh, a number of text messages from Fox News hosts to Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff to then President Donald Trump, um, including as an example here, uh, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. Uh, This is hurting all of us. He's destroying his legacy. That was from uh, Fox News host Laura Ingram. Uh, so it, it has certainly drawn a lot of heat, and I think the it distilled to kind of its uh, best intentions. The idea of this committee is that it would help people get a better understanding of exactly what transpired that day and kind of help us move beyond it. And the question I have that I will go first to you, Sam, um, is there any civic good that you think can come out of this committee on the events of January 6th? Well, thanks for the question, Eric. You know, it's a very interesting time because on the one hand, there are people who say that this is the only way of getting to the truth of the matter. And there are others who basically say that such a committee, given the composition that it has, uh, given the Republicans who are on it and where they sit vis-a-vis the Republican Party today, that it's bound to produce a result that is not going to actually get to the facts of the matter. So uh, I don't want to cast any aspersions on any of the people involved in this. And to tell you the truth, I, I haven't followed the issue that closely, but I think I'm, that's that I suspect is uh, the case with a lot of Americans right now, that they have essentially moved on from this, for better or worse. I'm not sure whether it's for better or worse, but they've essentially moved on from this. So I think whether it's going to get to the truth of the matter, which is really what such inquiries should be about, such inquiries into whatever subject should surely be about getting to the truth of the matter. Uh, So assuming that that's what is going on, the people are trying to do that, if that's the case, and that's fine, Whether it will do so is a different question and whether people will pay much attention to whatever the committee comes up with is a whole different subject. My suspicion is it will become essentially a political football for both sides and they will play it for what what, what they think it's worth politically. Some will say, well, of course, this is – we had an insurrection and there will be others that will say, no, this shows that we can't possibly have a serious inquiry into this because the whole thing was rigged right from the very beginning. So I suppose I'm I'm not optimistic that it's actually going to contribute very much to civil discussion about this question because people have basically already made their minds up, whatever the facts. So I Very have, depressing, but I think that's the reality. I have a good friend who's a rather astute observer of the political scene, and whenever I hear him comment on anything related to the investigation into January 6th, it always seems that it's framed from the question of uh, what is best for the Republican Party. He is a bit of a partisan. Um, 
and that this is basically, a, as Sam said, a tool that is going to be used as a political cudgel by you know one side in order to bludgeon the other. And I don't think that that is an argument without merit, um, although I had heard – our congressman here in Grand Rapids, Peter Meyer, on the Fifth Column podcast made a point that I thought was a rather good one, which is that, you know, yes, the um, the the committee investigating it is political. It's a political body that's doing it. It's probably more political than the average committee investigation normally would be considering the circumstances. Uh, but that also the effort to cover up what happened there was also political. So it, we shouldn't be shocked that that is the, the nature of it. Um, but it, to me, at least, there, there are certain things that weren't revealed previously that have been revealed as a part of this. And I think I'm generally in favor of the idea of learning as much for those of us who want to learn as much as we can about what happened, making that information available and having some kind of investigation. It's just the, the simple idea that Congress would not at all take a look into what happened and just everyone just kind of move on from this incident as if it never transpired seems to be an even greater dereliction of Congress's duty than a bad committee investigation, which may be what we're getting. Well, the, the problem is, is <clears throat> the committee has assumed its conclusions already. I mean, in the, in the committee's justification, there's a statement that this was an act of domestic terrorism. That doesn't sound like an investigation to me. That sounds like we've determined what it is and now we're going to fill in the blanks. Um, there are many things I think that are worthy of investigation, the events surrounding January 6th. One is um, the Capitol Police response. What did that look like? What were the failures? What were the successes? Um, you know, it was, it was an unmitigated failure. There were people that gained unlawful entrance into the Capitol. There was a woman who was shot and killed trying to enter the Capitol. Um, there is um, – there are a lot of great questions that I think um, the Capitol Police need to answer. I think it would be good to involve uh, the, the Washington, D.C.'s police and what role in aiding or in not aiding the Capitol Police in trying to accomplish their duties. I think to bring in the FBI, what degree of foreknowledge did anybody have about this? Um, if there was any information, how was that acted upon? And then, of course, how did the White House respond to this? All of those, I think, are, 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 are essential questions to answer to just sort of better prepare the institutions to respond if anything happened like this in the future. But when you assume your conclusions, you're not going to get a sort of robust account um, that then you can draw conclusions from. And, and, and that's, that's a very tricky thing because, you know, it was, it was a tragic day. And any time that you have people <clears throat> assaulting police officers, any time you have people destroying public property – taking, uh, stealing uh, uh, belongings, including computers from congressmen. Like all of this is very serious stuff, but I don't see a very serious investigation here into, the, into those sort of broader issues. Maybe there is uh, behind the scenes. Not all of the committee's work is public. And of course, the committee's work is not done. So we can, we can hope to, to have some better answers to those questions. I think there are issues of civic irresponsibility clearly on both sides. I, I don't think it is – you could completely understand, again, looking at it from a partisan point of view, why Republicans would not want to uh, make much of this. They, you know, they, they would very much prefer that it just all goes away. They could pretend that it never happened. And this is how you have really the only people from the Republican Party who are participating in this are Adam Kinzinger, who is not running for re-election, and Liz Cheney, who may be defeated in a primary in her home state, both of whom were huge critics of President Trump. Uh, so in that sense, that's not all that surprising. Um, but it probably – it doesn't help the legitimacy of the process that you don't have equal participation from both political parties. But it was also – like so many things post-January 6th, it was set up like this, right? 
Why is this kind of an investigation not happening as a prelude to a vote on something like impeachment, which was rushed through? Even the impeachment that we had post-January 6 was put together by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in a way to try to make it hard as possible for Republicans to sign on to it, written in a way to be like that because they'd rather have it as a campaign issue, or at least they thought they would rather have it as a campaign issue, than they would as something that they should – they're actually trying to accomplish the goal of impeachment. So is it just – is it just the case that we are – our government has been once again completely subsumed to – pure partisan political interests, and we just can't seem to get anywhere beyond that. And so I ask Sam, I'm curious if you think, well, one, I mean, how, how, if you think it's possible, do we get beyond these kind of just pure partisan tribal interests that people have that don't allow us to deal with something that, that as Dan said, was a big deal. I mean, there's, uh, Kevin Williams said it, a great piece at National Review where there's this um, kind of whataboutism argument about January 6th is like, well, why is this riot more important than any of the riots that happened in the aftermath of the George Floyd stuff? And Williamson's point is, you know, there are however many thousands of murders that take place in this country every year. But if one of them is the president of the United States, we make a whole lot bigger deal out of that because it's the president of the United States. We even have our own word for it, assassination. So, yeah, it is different when it is the United States Capitol and the context in which all of that happened than it is uh, for what happened in Minneapolis and Chicago and, and so many other American cities. Is there, a, is there a way for us to get beyond this desire to view everything purely through just a partisan political lens? I wish I had a way forward, but alas, I don't. And the reason I say that is because I'm afraid I think most legislators on both sides of the aisle have relatively little interest in actually discerning the truth about some of these things. I hate to say it, but I think that's true. It doesn't play well when it comes to fundraising. It doesn't play well when it comes to um, (laughs) getting reelected. It doesn't play well when it comes to Uh, satisfying the base of your particular party. So there's very few incentives for legislators to treat these things with the seriousness that they deserve. I I suppose the best one could hope for, and given the context, given the institutions we have, given the people we have in legislators, given the incentive structure, would be something like uh, some sort of independent inquiry into it, which, uh, depending on who was selected, depending on who was staffing such an inquiry, might be a better way of getting to the truth of the matter. But as we've seen, we've seen this in administration after administration after administration, even those types of frameworks uh, get quickly hijacked get quickly read through the particular lens that's suited for the headlines of the day or the week or the month or the year. So unfortunately, I don't have any particular um, uh, hope at this point that there are alternative and serious ways of dealing with what was obviously a very serious problem that occurred at a very delicate time of of any constitutional republic, which of course is when you have you're undergoing a transfer of power. Yeah, I think I think we're also caught up in a unproductive argument over language. You, you, Dan, you'd pointed out earlier that in the statement of purpose for this committee, they called it a uh, act of domestic terrorism. And the same fifth column podcast with Congressman Meyer, he made a good point about that, which is you know, like there's the denotation and the connotation. The denotation is is there a definition of domestic terrorism that I could look at and I could look at the events of January 6th and go, okay, these two things seem compatible. And then there's the connotation, which is when you think of domestic terrorism, you think of the Oklahoma City bombing, not what happened on January 6th, which is not to minimize, again, the seriousness of what happened on January 6th. But it is so caught up in these debates about, is it an insurrection? Was it an attempted coup? 
what exactly are we going to call this, that we're just lost in that kind of an argument about what it even was, and and from some people, whether or not it was even a big deal, that it just seems to me that even even the most damning of information that could have been re- could be revealed by this committee, there's just a group of people who aren't going to take it seriously. And even if the details are rather mundane that are revealed, there is a group of people that are going to run around with their heads on fire. That the in the same way that the committee's conclusions are predetermined, the people who might care about the results of the committee, they also have their conclusions predetermined. Well, and in these questions, whether or not something is, let's say, an insurrection or an act of domestic terrorism, it depends on intentionality. And this is this is literally, you know, a riot that involved, you know, thousands of people all doing very different things. Some simply there to protest the election who never entered the Capitol at all. You have some people that seem to be just sort of trespassing um, who have who got access to the Capitol without in any sense sort of appearing to have forced entry. You have other people, you know, breaking windows to get in. Um, I think to assume that all of that is coordinated to a single purpose is to discount one of the things that I thought about a great deal um, the summer previous is – a lot of these riots and civic disturbances, and a lot of this is, is just true in general, they sort of spontaneously happen a lot of the time. It's not that the folks that, you know, you have, you know, opportunistic people, you have sincere protesters, you have a criminal element, and you might have, uh, you know, folks with a, with a, with a, with a political purpose, um, and, you know, one, one of the things that I would be very interested to see what the committee, dis- committee discovers is there were the, uh, the bombs that were planted outside of the Democratic and Republican National Committee offices. As I understand, they've made no arrests there. That is something that very clearly is some intentionality behind it and which actually did not happen on the Capitol grounds that day. Um, that's something that I think it's pretty easy to discern some intentionality for. But, you know, the events and the pictures we all saw um, looked more like chaos to me than an organized attempt to sort of seize control of the government. Yeah, I think you can have e- – even if it wasn't everybody there organized behind a single purpose in the same way that you said riots can happen somewhat spontaneously, usually you can find someone who is probably – able to be charged with a crime of inciting a riot. You have a small group of people or a few people uh, with a very specific purpose and they are able to foment the rest of the people that are there to join it. You know, the, the kind of the, the mob mentality takes over and people have that as an objective. I, I think that you know, underlying all of that, the gripe that brought most people there, which was a belief that something was wrong with the election and it had been stolen and that they needed to do something about it, even if not every single person had an intention of, well, we should break into the uh, U.S. Capitol and we should stop them from certifying it. If they were led by a small group of people, and I think we have established that there's some people who were there with that intention, um, nonetheless, we're following on that underlying intention. It's not to say that they all had a clear idea of exactly what they were doing, but it doesn't make it any less serious, even if they didn't have a clear and organized idea on what they were doing. So we will we will have to pay attention to what the committee finds beyond what they found already, and we will continue to do that, and we'll continue to see if anything comes of this investigation. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, the way that the committee was constructed – Clearly, the Democrats thought that it would be the best political issue for them, but uh, it does not seem that that is the case. And it seems that the overwhelming political issue we've seen in 2021 and that is likely to continue into 2022 is COVID. And we're still talking about COVID. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Omicron variant. And when I was thinking of topics for today's episode of Unwind, I had originally come around to an idea that I think I first heard floated by uh, Noah Rothman on the commentary podcast, which is Omicron is a good development. 
and his argument for why Omicron was a good development is that it is in the evolution of viruses like this, more transmissible and less deadly and more thus likely to swamp the Delta variant, which was more serious, more transmissible than the original, but uh, also more deadly um, or it seemed to be more deadly, uh, that this was a good development. And I was all prepared to embrace this idea. And then over the last handful of days, it seems everybody just decided, despite the fact that we have evidence from Scott Gottlieb pointing out that it looks like the wave in South Africa is already crashing, uh, which is a good sign, uh, that we have seen upticks again in cases, but we're looking at the wrong metric when we're looking at cases. We need to look at hospitalizations and deaths. Everybody decided to collectively lose their mind again. Uh, to, to the point where the White House, in a briefing, actually said this. We are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing, and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. The, that last part may have been from Ghostbusters. But that actual first part was from an actual statement from the White House about all of this. So, uh, Sam, I, I'm, cur I, I'm trying to think of how to ask this question to you. On, on one hand, you have the science part of it. You have the actual Omicron variant and how serious it may or may not be. And then you look around and it's see how it, once again, does not seem to affect people who have already decided that this is super serious and we have to take it very seriously. That you have, you know, thankfully not in the United States yet, but in the United Kingdom, um, hints towards locking down again, even though it, again, just does not appear that this is as serious as previous iterations of this virus were. Yes. Uh, it's rather depressing, actually, because I suggest it indicates that governments have not learnt a couple of things. One is that they're not engaging in the difficult but necessary job of assessing the different trade-offs, right, associated with dealing with pandemics or any number of problems, actually. Uh, it's extraordinary, for example, how much government policy, whether it's regarding things like who comes and enters, who enters and leaves the country, uh, what businesses are open, what are not, etc. All these things are basically subordinated to the the uh, people who are, quote-unquote, the experts in dealing with pandemics. It's as if this is the only thing that is driving uh, at least some governments in the world when it comes to dealing with uh, the, this problem. Uh, and the Netherlands, for example, has entered a lockdown and because they've seen cases rise, et cetera, et cetera, but they haven't seen deaths rise. And they haven't seen an influx yet of lots and lots of people into hospitals. And in Britain... I mean, Britain, which, of course, is the country we all tend to think about when we think about sort of Anglo-Saxon Anglo, Anglo liberties and the importance of restraints on power, etc. We have a Tory government. So not a bunch of lefties, but a Tory government that seems completely, is completely subordinate when it comes to forming policy on this issue to pandemic modelers who have turned out to be consistently wrong in their projections, in the way that they've talked about these sorts of questions. And it's as if things like, well, the consequences for the economy, the consequences for employment, the consequences for people having their uh, checkups deferred for all sorts of things which mean there's going to be a much higher likelihood of people not having things like cancers detected early, etc. All these things are just thrown out the door and we go for this one-size-fits-all approach. Now, fortunately, 
in the United States. Federalism, in a way, has been the the constitutional framework that has prevented the federal government from engaging in blanket impositions of a particular set of policies on the whole economy, on the whole country, for everything. But unfortunately, in many European countries, that's not the case. Their power is highly centralized. National governments basically are the ones that call most of the shots on these issues in most of these countries. So I, we've we've avoided some of these things, but I, I can't help but think that the deference that governments give to people, uh, scientists, people who work on these sorts of issues, and then exclude from consideration all the other things that need to be talked about and, and reflected upon seriously, we're just not learning. We're just not learning. And I think it's partly because uh, in many Western countries, scientists are basically the high priests of our time. Whatever they say is, is, is gospel, so to speak. And warnings from people with other areas of expertise who are pointing out some of the severe consequences that we know about that will definitely happen if we go down the same path again without any significant adjustment or nuancing or uh, development in the way that we deal with these problems, it's very depressing. It's as if you, they, you know, the, soon, the next variant comes along. Okay, so are we going to do this every single time this happens? So it's, it's very depressing because it tells me that many governments are basically following a sort of set a set way of dealing with these issues that do not reflect any significant learning from past mistakes. Is the problem that we're all we're all technocrats now, right? We we there seems to be an <laughs> approach to this that says if we do the exact right things, we turn the dials the exact way, we flip the right switches, uh, we follow the right playbook, and we're going to be able to go back to a. a, a basically a period of time exactly like before COVID ever existed. I mean, you hear this in some of the language that is used to talk about this, that, you know, it's even even in Joe Biden campaigning for president saying that we'll defeat, I'm not going to shut down the country, I'm going to shut down the virus. It's like, it, that's just, you know, as political messaging, I get it. That's just not how these things work. It is It is a virus. It exists for one purpose only, and that is to replicate, which is actually, again, I think part of the good news about the Omicron variant is it's not very productive for a virus if it kills all of its hosts off. It wants to continue to replicate. So being able to replicate and not kill its host off is actually better for it, which is why you see the evolution of these things become more transmissible but less deadly over time. But there's this overriding philosophy that seems to be that we can find a way to make cases go down to zero. And it as Sam said, for for scientists being the high priests of our age, you think one of the fundamental things they'd understand about virology is that you're not making it go away. The question is, how do we move on and live with it? And you wonder, in a less technical and technocratic time, if people would have just acquiesce to the idea that like it, it, it's here, it's getting less deadly, and we are just going to move on with our lives without these overbearing figures in it saying, we can still turn the dials the exact right way and make it go away entirely. I think what you see in that, in that statement from the White House is the limits of that technocracy. And there's a frustration and an anger directed at some of the citizenry in that. Um, and there's a sense in which one of the things we haven't talked about through all of this is that um, what we're dealing with here when we're dealing with politics is we are dealing with a process that involves the consent of the governed and that it, it is essential to have buy-in for the citizenry for anything you do as the government. And when you don't um, 
you know, the art of politics is persuasion and compromise. And the language we see here in that, in that statement is one that seems to have forsaken persuasion and is totally unopened to compromise. And when your political agenda doesn't acknowledge the reality on the ground and where people are, um, you're, not, you're not going to move forward. And as long as you persist in that sort of attitude that rejects viewing all citizens as equal, as citizens that the government is responsible to all of these people, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, they are all equally citizens. They are all equally deserving of respect and of consideration by their government. And if you forsake that, um, there's never going to be any solution. Isn't also part of this that the reason we have governments and we have politicians is so that they can engage in a considered prudential reflection upon all the different things that have to be thought about. And that's not what's happening right now. They've essentially farmed out the determination of policy in many respects to scientists. Now, Experts are important. There's a reason why we have people who spend a lot of time specialising in particular subjects because it means they develop highly sophisticated knowledge of a particular area. But just because you are a skilled uh, epidemiologist or for that matter a skilled economist or for that matter uh, a skilled chemist or whatever it happens to be, your knowledge is part of the input into into a process whereby there's a lot of other different things being factored into the policy decision. And it seems to me that governments have lost sight that this is part of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making the very hard, difficult decisions about how you reconcile as best you can different trade-offs that are associated with going down different paths. And it seems to me that the, the trade-offs associated with lockdowns in many governments' minds, not all, but many governments' minds, they're just not even thinking about this. I think there's also a problem of the corruption of the expert class, a, a uh, sure. treason of the epidemiologists, if you will. That uh, it, It's what I think is similar to the problem of Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a brilliant linguist. Noam Chomsky leveraged his brilliance and expertise in one subject to convince a whole lot of people that they should listen to him about things like foreign policy, where really he does not have a whole lot of expertise. I think you're seeing that amongst a huge number of people in the expert class. And I think you can point to the distrust for people who are now distrustful of those with expertise in epidemiology, in virology, back to the what we'd mentioned before the time of the protests and riots after the George Floyd incident where you had a huge group of epidemiologists all release a statement saying right. that well racism is a public health crisis too therefore despite the fact that we have been telling you for months that people should not gather in large groups even if it's outside this one is okay because you're fighting against some greater problem than uh, what we're trying to protect against in the first place and when people see that and they hear that, they go, these people are ridiculous and they don't trust them anymore. And it's because even if you – even if you are convinced of the idea that racism is a public health crisis, the idea of a whole bunch of epidemiologists weighing in on a political issue, a civic issue unrelated to their field of expertise is a – corrupts people's – the respect that people have for people with expertise and it leads them to say, why should I listen to you any more than I should listen to literally anyone else on this subject? Well, this is what we call uh, – I'm not the only one who uses this phrase – the problem of expertitis, that because you are a specialist in a particular area, whether it's economics, theology, philosophy, um, chemistry, physics, whatever, therefore – you are somehow qualified to talk about every conceivable subject under the sun 
Instead of saying when someone says, asks you a question about which you know very little, instead of saying, look, I'm sorry, but I just don't know very much about that subject and I prefer not to offer opinions on topics that I really know very, very little about. It's like theologians who weigh in on very complicated economic subjects and you realise they've never opened an economics textbook in their life. Or for that matter, economists who talk about religious questions being completely oblivious to the fact that many of the questions addressed by religion and the scope that religion opens up in terms of people's understanding of the world extends far beyond economic methodology. So it's a problem. I think you're right. It it is a problem that reflects the society in which we put so much faith in experts, but also it reflects the fact that we have large numbers of uh, very highly educated people who know a great deal about very particular subjects, but very little about very much else. I often say when I'm with uh, philosophers, I get very frustrated because when economic subjects come up, it's very clear that they know very little about it. Or when I'm with some economists and a philosophical question comes up or some question of ethics, and it's very clear that they have not really studied these sorts of areas, but they nonetheless believe that because they have a certain position, a certain type of knowledge, that somehow they're qualified to talk about everything else. A sort of self-restraining, <laughs> self-restraining imperative, I think, would be very helpful in clarifying the way in which experts contribute to public discussion because at the moment many of them are talking about things they know nothing about. So on the Sunday shows, uh, one of the Sunday shows, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, was asked the question of when he thinks we're going to get back to uh, maskless air travel. And his suggestion was, um, well, maybe never. And I think about this in context of, Dan, what you said earlier, which is the, um, the prop, one of the problems here is the consent of the governed. And if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, once we got past the first couple of months and we started leading into the 2020 election, look, uh, presidential elections especially are overdetermined phenomenon. But it was very clear that people at the time, by and large, did not trust Donald Trump and the Trump administration to handle this. And Joe Biden was saying, I will get you out of it. And then you look at the elections that just happened in November of this year, where in Virginia and in New Jersey, you had these huge shifts away from the Democrats and towards the Republican Party. And there's been a lot of explanations offered. We'll come to one of those uh, explanations in a moment here when we switch topics. And Virginia was education. And it wasn't just critical race theory. It was the fact that in Fairfax County, a bunch of schools had been closed for an entire year. In New Jersey, um, you know, you didn't have people running on education. And the, to me, the most likely explanation for these huge shifts is voters are trying to communicate that they are very much done with early stage pandemic response even though people are trying to extend that as far as it will possibly go, like saying maybe we'll never remove masks on airplanes ever again. Yeah, if you look, all, all, all of this is um, very symptomatic of an inability to take people's concerns seriously. Um. What what they what they are looking at is they are reducing this to a single number of cases of uh, of deaths of hospitalizations, and they're using you know Sam brought up these models earlier, and I'm I'm reminded you know the famous economist Milton Friedman talked about how you know models aren't necessarily true or false. They're either useful or they're not useful. And given the political climate of the country, these models are no longer useful to address this problem. We have to figure out a way forward beyond this. We have to come to some sort of public consensus about what sort of trade-offs we're willing to make. And maybe that trade-off does involve masks on airplanes for 
an extended period of time. But we need to actually have that debate and we need to have that debate um, as a citizenry and we need to have that debate in the context of politicians that are willing to acknowledge that there are indeed political constraints. The famous economist Ludwig von Mises uh, worked in the Austrian Treasury Department. And Ludwig von Mises is very well known for being this theoretician of sort of free market economics and a champion of sort of laissez-faire. But if you look at what he actually did in the Treasury Department, it wasn't always privatize everything. He realized that state subsidies for the opera in Austria, that's going to be a thing. That is just – that's just the political <laughs> environment that the, that's there. People love opera. The political class is not going to abandon the opera house. So if you look in those, in those papers of what he's doing in the Treasury Department is he's trying to move things incrementally forward. And it's not always my way or the highway, which didn't mean that he didn't have an expert opinion that he very much was invested in. But he also realized he lived in a world with other people and with varying political interests and constraints and that, those, those are the limits that folks are going to have to acknowledge for us to move forward. It sounds like he failed to ask the famous uh, University of Chicago question there, which is he found these things that worked in practice. But do they work in theory? Uh, let's move – we mentioned schools earlier. Let's move on to that as our final topic for today, which is Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has uh, announced a new legislative proposal – and I always love these reverse engineered acronyms that come in legislation. It is the Stop Woke Act, which is the Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, which is just – I always love the reverse engineered acronyms. They're usually fantastic for how stilted and awful they are. But it is a – according to a statement here from Governor DeSantis, a proposal that will give businesses, employees, children, and family tools to fight back against woke indoctrination. The Stop Woke Act will be the strongest legislation of its kind in the nation and will take on both corporate wokeness and critical race theory. Uh, today's proposal builds on actions Governor DeSantis has already taken to ban critical race theory in the New York Times 1619 project in Florida schools. For more information about the Stop Woke Act, click here. And just so you know, when I do, uh, it gives me a 404 error page and I do not get any more information on it, which may be an indication of the uh, depth and seriousness of this legislation. But nonetheless, uh, there have been many proposals, legislative proposals like this to deal with problems within schools. But uh, Sam, so two two things to you. Um, one, what is different here and what I've been amenable to in some of the arguments about what do we do about school curriculums is that school curriculums are public schools. They are functions of different levels of government and changing curriculum is a political legislative act. Okay. Uh, now we're talking about what private businesses are choosing to do. And this is not, to me, a question about the wisdom of whether they should have these kinds of DEI committees and these kinds of woke education seminars within businesses. They are nonetheless private businesses and can act as they decide to. So is this um, – what do you make of this new inclusion of what corporations are doing and can we legislate this problem away? Well, a couple of points. First of all, I think legislating when it comes to what private companies do in their internal operations is always a tricky business, right? So we do actually legislate in ways that, for example, um, prevent private companies from doing all sorts of things, which I think are usually good things to stop them from doing. We don't allow private companies to engage in slavery, for example. We don't allow people to sell themselves into slavery, into etc. So that's one thing. The second thing, however, is that, that you know those cases are genuinely a relatively small number of cases, and for the most part, it's generally unwise for governments to engage in one-size-fits-all approaches to these sorts of issues. And there's a flip side to this, of course, because we're seeing now organizations like the Security and Exchange Commission coming under immense pressure to basically regulate 
in favour of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion stuff and to try and force companies around the United States to incorporate this ideology because that's what it is, this ideology into their practices. So if a, if a company wants to, in, you know, embrace DEI and all these different things, well, fine. I think they may run into some anti-discrimination problems somewhere down the line. I suspect that's very likely. Uh, But generally speaking, if they want to do that and they want to hire people on the basis of their skin color or whatever it happens to be, rather than their ability or talent or what, you know, well, they'll pay a price for that. They will pay a price for that if they end up hiring people who are suboptimal when it comes to actually performing the job and (laughs) achieving the purpose of the business, which of course is profit and a return to shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at this, when you think about this this issue, I do think that legislation is generally a very clumsy way of trying to deal with some of these issues. On the other hand, we also have to take into account the fact that the left are trying to use legislation to try and push some of these these this ideology, this diversity ideology, into corporate America. And of course, there's plenty of people in corporate America who are actively welcoming some of this intervention as well, which tells you a great deal about how messed up a lot of corporate America is when it comes to thinking about these these types of questions. But really, the best way of dealing with the woke stuff is to expose it for what it is in the public square. Now, part of the way, the strategy of the woke people was to essentially try and deny you the ability to do that by saying, well, if you criticize us, then clearly you are a racist, clearly you hate women, clearly you hate the following groups, etc. But it seems to me that that still remains the best way. When I, and when I think of some of the work that's been done uh, in exposing some of these, these agendas within private companies, and the way that private companies have genuinely responded by, in many cases, shutting these programs down straight away as soon as they became public, because they know, they know that this stuff is toxic to increasing numbers of Americans who don't look favorably upon companies going down this path and embracing this ideology. I, I think about this and I, I wonder how different it actually, with regard to, to businesses, how different it actually is from basically what Jesse Jackson used to do, which was to say, um, we will make a huge deal out of whatever small issue happened here. We will protest. We will yell and scream. Or you can kind of bring us in, you can give us some money, and we will perform essentially a credentializing function. We will say that you are an absolved business, that you are fine, you have, we have partnered with you uh, for this purpose. And I, I think uh, what maybe the optimistic take from what Sam was saying there, which is that has become maybe such an ingrained part of corporate culture to say that anytime you think that there are these problems that are supposedly identified, there are these credentialed experts, we're back to experts again, that you can hire and bring in and they give you the credential that says the problem is solved and you could move on. And there isn't a whole lot of actual investment from the corporate leaders. In some cases there are, but not a, a huge overarching commitment to these ideas. They just believe that you know, what exists out there in the political milieu says that they're supposed to embrace this, they're supposed to do it, so they hire these people, they bring them in without a whole lot of critical examination of what they're actually teaching to their employees. Well, this is the thing about legislating this, both in the public sector and the private sector, is that is that personnel is policy and that and that ideas have consequences. And these ideas have purchase in our culture. Uh, to give an example, and this is when I was thinking about, you know, what, what, what is it to criminalize the woke acts of corporations? You know, I know a restaurant that stopped stocking the beer of a brewery because there was a discrimination lawsuit that was eventually settled with that brewery. Now, This has to do with the convictions of that restaurant owner about racism in this society and what he believes, you know, him taking a stand through the way he makes purchases um, 
opposing the presence of racism in the society. So are we to say that he has to continue to purchase and stock this beer from another company because he's animated by um, a commitment to sort of diversity and inclusion? And the reality of it is, is as long as you have a teacher in the classroom, you know, you could ban the 1619 project. But if somebody is oriented philosophically and if someone views the history of the nation through that lens, there are plenty of resources that they could employ other than that to communicate that view of the republic and its history. And you cannot – I mean you could, you could, you could seek you know, to, 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 to take a sort of you know, legislative – cudgel, but people are going to work around that as long as this is sort of a movement in the culture, as long as there are people in schools, in corporate America that are committed to this vision, this is going to happen one way or the other. And there's not really an effective legislative means to get around the people in which – because, you know, these ideas exist in the minds of people and these ideas have their power because they offer to people an explanatory vision of where we are as a country, what is wrong and what needs to happen to move forward. And there is no way that you can, you can get at and extinguish that sort of fire in the hearts of men. Um, you need some other animating vision to displace it and that, and that can't be legislated. I, I think with regard to schools in particular and, and why this resonates more I think when it comes to schools than it does with businesses is because as Sam said, we've been revealing – um, in some particular cases, the what what we have used critical race theory as an umbrella term to describe that has been going on in schools, but the general corruption and problems within public schools, and I think you've seen this particularly in the last you know two years, basically since everybody was forced to go uh, their kids to go home because of the pandemic, and then they became uh, their kids' primary teachers that there's just a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in schools. And by way of example, and this is notedly an anecdote, but to your point about it's the actions of individual teachers who have come to embrace certain ideas, uh, this is a story from a D.C. elementary school. A Watkins Elementary School staff member told third graders in library class to reenact scenes from the Holocaust, directing them to dig their classmates' mass graves and simulate shooting the victims, according to an email from the school's principal. The instructor was placed on leave Friday. You want to think that that's the kind of thing that's so insane that it couldn't happen within a school, and yet here we are reading a story about it. And to Dan's point, I think this is absolutely correct, that – you can mandate a certain kind of curriculum. You can ban the teaching of certain kinds of ideas. But if they have purchase with the people who are actually doing the work, you're not going to get it fully out of there. And there's been an abdication. There's a corruption problem as well within the credentialing process for teachers with what those teachers are taught when they are learning to be teachers. And people on the right, I think, have largely abandoned this profession as they have a lot of other professions and then are shocked and appalled when the only people that are teaching in elementary schools are people of an ideology of the, of the left when people with an ideology on the right have just decided, well, I'm not interested in teaching. I don't want to go into that. And we should, why should we then be surprised when people who have started on the left, were brought up on the left, were credentialed by people on the left, go into schools and start acting according to that? We shouldn't be shocked. We should also, in, in addition to that, Eric, I think one thing to keep in mind is that the left has consciously targeted what you might call the culture-forming institutions of society for a very long time. This really goes back to Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist theoretician, who said, look, if you want to move society in a particular direction, it's not about the means of production, the means of economic production. It's really about 
capturing, let's call them the cultural means of production. Newspapers, schools, religious organizations, anywhere in which there is reflection upon what it means to be a human being, what is good, what is right, what is just, what is not just, etc. These fundamental questions with which human beings grapple. And the left have, I think it's fair to say, consciously targeted many of these institutions for uh, takeover. And I don't think I'm being a conspiracy theorist here, by the way. In fact, they actively talk about this. If you read enough of their material, it's all laid out in Gramsci. It's all laid out in Alinsky. It's all there. And I think that many people on the right have simply underestimated this, particularly, I'd, I'd say, on the economic right, because uh, on the economic right, the tendency is to think about supply-demand, markets versus state intervention, et cetera, et cetera. And culture is this more amorphous area that's difficult to measure. Therefore, we can't really take it so seriously because it's not quantifiable, et cetera, et cetera, until they discover that uh, their child is being exposed to gender theory <laughs> at the local public school and they don't know how to respond to this. They don't know how to articulate a response to this. So, I think you're, you're right about the way in which many people on the right have essentially neglected these culture-forming institutions, and we should also take into account that the left take culture, I think in many respects, much more seriously, in at least in terms of trying to realise particular political agendas than the right has. Now, I happen to think that it's bad for any institutions that are seriously engaged in cultural questions to subordinate the pursuit of truth in these areas to the realisation of political objectives. So I wouldn't particularly like to see the right engaging in this same type of exercise, but I think that's not a reason for us to underestimate just how systematic the left has been in consciously shaping cultural institutions because they know that ultimately it's culture rather than economics that drives things. Yeah, I've made this point on this podcast before that it is, it's not just that what Sam said is correct. I think it is. It's that people on the right seeded the battlefield for so long just to say we, you don't have particular interests in, um, uh, in, in teaching. Uh, you, know, you shouldn't we, – we set up these um, monastery-like institutions that are of our own rather than trying to work concertedly even if it would be difficult to get more conservative students into places like Harvard and Yale and more conservatives on the faculty of places like Harvard and Yale. That's not to say it wouldn't be difficult but it's to say that it's an important and necessary fight because the kind of cultural cachet that Harvard and Yale have is irreplaceable. And you can build all the University of Austins that you want, and I hope that that is a successful project. I think it is a worthwhile project. But you're not going to replace what is built up over hundreds of years, the cultural cachet that places like Harvard has. Nor do I think that because you realize that you seeded the battlefield for so long, the solution uh, – the, the wisest solution at this point in time is to say, take off and nuke it from orbit just to be sure. I mean, that is as culturally destructive as I think what has transpired and, and transmorphed these institutions into what we see them today are. And, and that I, I got this answer in part because I asked a question to Yuval Levin when I talked to him for an episode of Act in Line that came out last week. That the problem is, is that there's there there aren't easy, simple, and quick solutions to a lot of these problems. I think this is my bigger problem with the legislative approaches: is that uh, people, it, it's not that they may not be advisable in the near term, or that they couldn't ha perhaps move the ball forward on this. Is that people are looking for something that they can snap their fingers and fix the problem, and it has been building up for so long, and it's going to have to be unwound over so much time that people need to have some sense of patience, and there just isn't a lot out there these days. To bring in another movie reference, you know, there's that famous scene in The Breakfast Club when the janitor is speaking with the principal, and the principal is frustrated with the kids, and the janitor says, you know, 
when you took this job, you thought it'd be easy. And you were like, I'd get summers off and it'll be great. And then you showed up and, you know, you found out it was actually work. And that really bummed you out. And that is, that's, that's the reality of our civic institutions is it requires folks to be involved. This is, this is, and, and it takes work and it takes negotiating in these often very difficult contexts some way forward. And that way forward is not is, – is, it's going to be a long road and it is going to be a series of marginal improvements. But you don't get there without doing the work. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We are off next week. Please have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and we'll see you back here in 2022.